Welcome to the weekly podcast of Wildwood Baptist Church in Ackworth, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. We're so glad that you're joining us today. If you'd like to know more about Wildwood Baptist Church, you can find us on the web at wildwoodbaptist.org, or you can email us at info at wildwoodbaptist.org. Thanks for joining us. Let's open the Word of God together. Last week, if you were here, you you heard us leave off at a place that um, really spoke to me. It stayed with me, and it has to do with the freedom that we're given in Christ. And um, I want to kind of revisit that before we launch into chapter 5 of Galatians. By the way, for those of you who may be new, we're, we're studying um, the book of Galatians, this letter that Paul writes to the believers in Galatia, several different churches that obviously he had started over two different missionary journeys when he was there. So Paul is writing this letter, and quite frankly, he's speaking of, their displ- of his displeasure with the way that they had responded to some new teaching. There, there were Jewish leaders who had come in who had told them, yes, you can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. However, the Jews were the chosen people of God, and therefore you have to do what Jews do. You have to also abide by the law. They were naming things like circumcision for the males and, uh, and uh, certain customs and traditions that they had to keep. And all of these things they were suggesting were things that were added to the requirements for a person to be saved. And, and Paul absolutely despised this teaching. Now keep in mind that he was a former Pharisee. So he was a teacher of the law. He was well known for that and he was also well addressed and well equipped to do those things. But he has an encounter with Jesus Christ. He places his faith and trust in him and Jesus tells him, this is the gospel. These are the things that I want people to know this is the truth and so Paul's having a hard time with people that keep going back to the old traditions and the old beliefs and mixing it in with the truth that Jesus has shared with Paul and now Paul is to share with others as the way for someone to be saved so anyway getting back to chapter four he's telling them that there's a comparison that we can make, uh, an analogy. He speaks of it in the ESV translation as a, as a metaphor. And he says, we're a lot like uh, Ishmael and Isaac. And he says, believers are like Isaac because Isaac was a child of promise. And unbelievers are like Ishmael because Ishmael was a child of the flesh. And what he basically told us last week in Galatians chapter 4 is that uh, Ishmael was an impulsive response to a lot of lack of satisfaction that Abraham and Sarah were experiencing in wanting what God says they were to have, and that was a child. So God promises Abraham, hey, you're going to be the father of many nations, and the problem with that was he and Sarah had no children. So how's that going to happen? So they decided that they were going to try to help God. Um, Sarah says, hey, why don't you marry Hagar, my maid, and see if you can have a child by her. They do. That's Ishmael. But that wasn't God's plan. They, they active uh, uh, out of impulse and out of uh, spontaneity and not out of God's guiding. So God returns to Abraham later and says, okay, now's the time. And the Bible tells us that Abraham laughs. He laughs out of embarrassment. 
because he realizes that he's missed God, that God had a plan far better. He had a promise for him that Abraham failed to wait for. And lo and behold, barren, once barren Sarah now has a child named Isaac. This is the promised child that God had spoken of. So the comparison is this. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of promise. And God's granted you a hope and a future. And sometimes in this journey with Christ, we're uh, a little lackadaisical, not really wanting to do anything about it. Let God do everything, and if he wants me, he knows where to find me, and whatever God wants is going to happen, so why do I have to be involved? And that's the wrong attitude. We should be pursuing and seeking the things of God as believers and passionate followers of Jesus Christ. But also, we can't get ahead of him. We can't act impulsively out of the flesh because God's given us all these great promises, so let's go for them, and when you want them, you can get them. That's not the plan either. God, God wants us to wait on him and follow the leading of his spirit. So this is what I want you to, to know as we embark on chapter 5. Chapter 4 basically tells us this, and this is your first bullet point. Believers in Christ are people of promise, and those promises do occur in God's perfect timing. That, that's the interesting, delicate balance and mix that keeps us from acting too prematurely, um, pursuing the things of God before God wants us to, but also lack, not lackadaisically, where we do absolutely nothing. Uh, my wife calls it uh, couch potato Christianity, where you just kind of sit back and go, well, God knows where to find me if he needs me, because God wants you to pursue him. So this is the delicate balance that Paul is teaching about. But, but he points this out, and again, we want to revisit this, that the promises that God grant those uh, who believe in him, they come by faith, and they come with the promise that there is freedom in Christ to pursue them. So we're no longer guilty of our sin, and the key to understanding this is that there is no shame, there is no guilt, there is no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. Therefore, they are free now to pursue the things of God. They, they're not held back, and, there, and there's no atonement or payment uh, necessary any longer. So we don't have to focus on good behavior. Not that good behavior is bad, but you know, if we're so attuned to can't do this, can't do that, can't do then we don't pursue what God wants us to do because we're so focused on the law. And that's basically what Paul is teaching. Keep in mind in another letter, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are a new creation in Christ. And he makes this comment. I think this is hugely important for us to understand what he's teaching here. He says, the old has passed and the new is here. So all of the things that we used to think we were supposed to do or that we thought were right, they're not bad things. They're just old things. Now we are to pursue this new relationship that we're given in Jesus Christ through faith and trust in who he is and what he's done for us on the cross. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 aloud. You follow along in your Bible or feel free to follow along on the screen. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, 
say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul is telling them that you can't have both. That you can't place your faith and trust for salvation to come by abiding in the law and by trusting in Jesus. It's either one or the other. And he's saying, trust me, it's by faith in Jesus Christ. And he's trying to get this through their heads that that is really the only way that anyone could be saved anyone anyway. Because what they're doing is they're abiding by a few of the laws, but because they're all sinful, fallen people, just like you and I, they're failing at some of them as well. And so the Apostle Paul is pointing this out. He's like, listen, if you fail at some of them, you fail to achieve salvation if you trust in the law as being the means by which you receive salvation. So don't do that. Don't trust in abiding by the law to be a means of salvation. You receive salvation by God's grace through faith in what Christ did for you on the cross. And that alone, there's nothing else. And so, again, he, he reminds them, if you rely on the law, and he mentions uh, abiding by the law by circumcision, then you've just negated what Christ did for you on the cross. If you could be saved by obedience, then Christ wasted his time on the cross. And you're belittling Christ offering his life for that. And he says, not only that, but, you, but you're no longer Christ. You no longer belong to him. That's what he says in verse 4. Let's read it again. He says, you were severed from Christ, you who would be justified, that word justified here means counted righteous, by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So basically, he's clearly stating there are no two different means or multiple different means of salvation. You can't have law and grace. You must choose in whom or what you trust your salvation with. And if you choose the law, then you've fallen away from trusting in grace. So the bottom line is this. This is your second bullet point this morning. Christ must be everything that we need for salvation or is nothing. You, you, he's all or he's nothing in regards to being saved. And if he's everything, then there's nothing else that needs to be or should be added to that. No divided allegiance is acceptable by God, right? The hope of a believer's uh, future is found in the righteousness that we receive through Christ and his atonement for our sin by his death on that cross. He not only took our sin, he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. And that's the justification that we now receive. And then we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us and, and to encourage us, to comfort us and empower us to do the very things that God desires for every believer to do. So once you trust in his love by faith, that really leads to you falling deeply in love with him as well. Faith is empowered by love. And keep this in mind, he loved you first. He, he, he didn't wait for you to love him before he loved you. 
The Bible tells us in Romans 5.8 that he proved his love for us because while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't wait for you and I to get our acts together and our eyes open to who Christ truly is. He went ahead and died so that we could be saved. Why does he do this? Why, why is Paul so adamant? I mean, what, what harm would come from believers following traditions and following customs and abiding by the law along with uh, uh, trusting in Christ as Savior? Well, here's the truth of the matter, and it's your third bullet point. God isn't interested in rituals. God is interested in a relationship. That, that's the reason why all these other things that people are trying to add to salvation are really hindrances to his will and his way for our lives. When, when you see everything that God has done by sending his son to die for you on the cross so that you can be saved, and you add anything to that, again, you're, you're belittling the fact that he gave his son so that you could be saved. And that is all that you need. There's nothing to be added to that. Now, I will say this, that there are different motivations behind placing your faith and trust in Jesus. One of those motivations, quite frankly, is fear. When I was a nine-year-old boy, and I sat kind of where you're sitting right now and heard someone speaking like where I'm speaking from right now, and they said, if you do not place your faith and trust in Jesus, um, before you die, when you die, you will go to hell. It scared the bejeebers out of me. And as a nine-year-old boy, I was like, I, I'm going up there. He just said, come up. I'm going up. And my parents were like, no, 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 you don't have to do it. And I'm like, that's not what he's saying, right? He's telling me that if I don't go up there to him, that I'm going down there later, you know, and I, I don't want any part of that. It was fear. I was motivated by fear. Now, I believe I was saved. I, I think you can be saved out of fear of the consequences of your sin. And so I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I got baptized, and I began my journey with Christ out of fear. I'm just telling you this morning that I don't think fear is the best motivation when it comes to following Christ. In fact, I find a far more and, uh, effective and better motivation is the motivation of love. You, you see, when, when you look at God as, as his child— and you respond to him as Abba, Father, right? Or rather than, oh, this is the guy that's really hard to please and he's incredibly harsh and he's incredibly powerful, right? Rather than seeing him as a judgmental God, well, your relationship with him will not only be edifying to you, it will also be everything that I believe God desires for it to be. We, we will look for him and we will follow him and we will do the things that he tells us to do out of the love that we have for him and all of that began when he proved his love for us by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins so that's what basically paul is is saying that that this is the truth and and he's wondering why they've turned from that why all of a sudden are there these roadblocks that they're facing? In fact, that's what he goes on to say in verses 7 through 12. Let me read those verses to you. He says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers and sisters, 
still preach, and that word can also be translated as proclaim, if I still proclaim circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. As you probably already know, Paul often uses the metaphor of running a race to our journey with Christ. In several of his letters to churches, he writes in that vein. And he says that, that we were running well with Christ. Why, why all of a sudden have we hit these roadblocks? And he asks the question, who's done this to you? He knows the answer. He's, he's, he's well aware that Jewish leaders have come in. They've infiltrated these camps of Gentiles being saved, and they're pushing their Judaism on them saying, yes, you can believe in Christ, but you also must do these things, as we already stated. And Paul's really asking them, why are you listening to them? Why are you questioning the truth that I've shared with you about salvation? And he then goes in to saying, you know, just a few of those guys got mixed with you, and all of a sudden the whole group of you are questioning what it takes to be saved. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But he says, I've got confidence that you will take the view that I've given you, that you're going to believe in what is true. That's his prayer. That's his confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and the one who's misleading you, they're going to, they're going to suffer the consequences for that. They're, they're going to be dealt with ever so harshly. And, uh, and he's, he's pretty clear about that as well. And then he, he points out, by the way, any of them that say that they're working with me, that's not the case. He says, I wouldn't be still persecuted if I were telling you that you need to be circumcised or you need to be part of the law in order to be saved. They wouldn't be attacking me the way that they are. So make no mistake, they're not with me in regards to the truth and the rhetoric that I'm sharing with you. And, and he's basically saying that the truth is going to be discovered uh, one day soon, that, that you need to follow what is true. I shared with you the truth, Paul is telling them, don't be misled by others. And these people are going to suffer consequences again for their false teaching because they're not real leaders. We're going to see this next week. Can I jump ahead just for a second? Um, Lord willing, we'll be able to study Galatians chapter 6 to wrap up our study together. But this is something that Paul shares that we'll talk more about next week. It's powerful. He says in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You and I have a different evaluating system about what's good and bad. And for the most part, you and I can say, that's bad, that's good. But there's always the gray. You know, there's always this tweener part that we go, uh, that may not be all that bad. You know, that may be a little white lie. Or, or you know, that's not murder. You know, that's not the big uh, sins that the Bible talks about. And, and we kind of justify poor behavior by belittling everything that God says is sin. And so Paul points out in our study next week, listen, God sees everything. And, and whether you evaluate it the way he evalu evaluates it or not, that's not what's important. What's important is how he evaluates it. And he's not mocked. You, you may think, well, uh, we know what to say and we know what to do, and the things that we say and the things that we do will lead you to believe that I am a Christian. God knows us from our inside. 
He knows our hearts. He knows what motivates us to say what we say and do what we do. So the challenge that he's bringing up here is that God knows everything. So, so don't pretend like he doesn't because he does. I like what the writer in Hebrews writes. He says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, I realize this. This may sound like a contradiction to what I just said, telling you that you don't have to fear God, but there are two different kinds of fear that the Bible speaks about. There is a reverent respect for God that says, I recognize him as being all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present. There is nothing that escapes him, and, and I, I fear the fact that um, my waywardness is appalling to him or displeasing to him. That, that's a healthy kind of fear. Uh, an unhealthy kind of fear is a fear that um, paralyzes us, you know, or causes us to cower. It's like, oh no, he can't have anything to do with me. I can't have anything to do with him because, uh, because he despises me or, or his power will, will consume me, all those kind of things. That, that's not the kind of relationship that God's looking for with us as believers. He, he wants this close-knit, intimate, growing love between us and him that will lead to fruitful living and will honor and glorify him because of who he's leading us to become by his spirit. That's what he's looking for. But keep this in mind, the time of judgment has not yet come. In fact, Jesus makes this really, really clear. He's trying to tell them, I know some of you are worried about me judging you. That time hasn't come yet. Notice what he says in John 12, verse 47. He says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So relax in your concern of, oh, I'm going to get spanked by Jesus, you know, for what I've done. I know that's a little facetious, but we, we often are like, oh, no, what have I done? What is he going to do? That time hasn't come yet, but it will. In fact, Jesus is the very one who will judge. Here's the key to a good balance between the two, is knowing that you have a right relationship with the one who moves from Savior to judge of the world. And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son to have life in himself. So he says, we have the power to bring the dead back to life when Christ returns. Verse 27, and he has given him authority, God has given Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And he warns us, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now watch the separation between the two responses. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now you may look at that and say, that's exactly what I've been saying. I have to do good. No, the ones that he's describing in this passage as being good have received and been imputed righteousness by the blood of their Savior who died on the cross. It's not good deeds. It's righteousness that's been granted you by the blood that was shed on the cross that you now trust in as being adequate sacrifice and atonement for your sin. 
The ones who do evil are the ones who've either rejected that truth or they've altered it. And they said, yeah, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. The rest of it is this or that. And listen, there are people who live in a modern-day sense that will tell you, we have just discovered this incredibly new thing about God that God waited to tell us until now. And I'm just going to tell you this. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, don't believe it. If you can't find it backed by Scripture, then don't buy into it because God has given everything that you and I need to follow him and his ways in scripture so he's not going to grant that to someone in the future and certainly not in the present day age that we live in as well certainly if it doesn't line up with what with what scripture tells us so what he's talking about here is you make sure that you are a child of God before Jesus comes back to judge and you're going to be fine and for those who who say that they are but they really aren't and again God knows this by our hearts that's why he says in Matthew 7 23 they're going to be those who call him Lord we know we recognize you as Lord we call you Lord hey didn't we do these great things in your name we greeted at the church we taught the little ones we we uh, showed up for a lot of the services we prayed and read our Bible and gave on a regular basis and you know what Jesus says to them depart from me why because I never knew you you didn't know, we didn't have the relationship that is available and really required when you believe in Jesus as Savior and begin to follow him as Lord. He goes on to say in verse 11, make no mistake, they're going to tell you that they're working together with me. We're not. He asked them this question, would I still be persecuted if I was telling you to be circumcised? No, I'm not telling you to be circumcised. I'm not telling you to do anything but believe to be saved so we are not working together and then he makes one of the most boldest um, most harsh statements that we see in all of scripture listen to what he says again in verse 12 I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves now there are a couple definitions that we could take for emasculate it could mean that you'd be removed from your position of leadership it could also mean to castrate and for those of you that don't know what the meaning of the word castrate is, let me just tell you this, it is not pleasant. <laughs> He's probably saying that he wishes that they would be cut off or separated from believers so that they would stop doing them so much harm. And there's a phrase that we see in Scripture that I think kind of parallels this. In fact, you've heard it before. Uh, there's a warning in Scripture that we have to be careful about wolves in sheep's clothing. In fact, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 7, verse 15, where he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, they may sound wise, and they may look good, and it may look like they want to help you, but if what they tell you does not line up with Scripture, then they are not teachers of the truth. They are false leaders teaching false information. And if their lives don't line up with people being set free by salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, then they are not teaching unity. They are teaching division. And Paul goes on to say that we're not to abuse our freedom 
by leading people in the wrong direction, nor are we to keep the freedom that we've been granted to ourselves and use it simply for selfish reasons. In fact, one of the great evidences of a transformed person is their desire and willingness to serve others. Listen to what he says in verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So the interesting thing about this is we not only need to watch out for false teachers, um, false leaders teaching false rhetoric, we also have to watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing, but we also apparently need to recognize the fact that sometimes our fellow sheep bite right we we can bite and devour one another's even though we are in the family of God and Paul is saying that should not happen we we should be lovers of people not haters of one another we need to work together not separately or speaking against one another and and he's really pointing out that love is the identification of our faith in Jesus Christ, that we're, we're enabled and empowered by God's Spirit to faithfully love one another, even when people aren't acting so lovable from time to time, as uh, believers sometimes can act. So how do we do that? How do we pull that off? How are we able to overcome our own flesh and follow the power and the leading of God. Well, this is what he addresses in verses 16 through 18. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So if you are saved... The Holy Spirit leads you to do what's best. And often he leads you to do not necessarily what you crave or you desire, kind of from your flesh, whether you recognize it or not, but to do and seek what is best to honor and glorify God the most. And this is exactly why Jesus told the disciples that it was going to be far better for him to leave them than uh, to stay because a helper is going to come. And he's going to teach them things uh, that they will never forget because of the Holy Spirit. So here's the fact about the Holy Spirit's power. Bullet point number four. We can turn from the wrong desires and the misguided works of our flesh. How? By following God's Spirit. And, and in order for us to understand the things that we will automatically do, often, you know, we'll look at this list in a moment, and you and I will go, I've done some of them, but I sure don't do many of those terrible things. It doesn't matter. They're all sin. Paul's going to point out the, the sins of the flesh. Listen to what he says in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Some manuscripts add murder, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these. Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do, and he's talking about making a practice of these things, such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He, he's telling you and I, without the power of the Holy Spirit, this is, these are the things that we're going to move to do because of the desires of the flesh. And if we're under the power of the Holy Spirit, based upon our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit's going to lead us from, away from doing these things. Now, you may look at some of those things and you go, I don't know exactly what that is. Here's one of the benefits. We have different translations that speak of all 16 of those sins, but in different ways. So let me share with you that same passage in the New King James translation version. Here's what it says in the New King James Version. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uh, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, which, by the way, are kind of like drinking parties that lead to sexual promiscuity, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is saying, if you are still in the habit of doing these things, you are not Christ. And, and if you're battling these things, w welcome to the family. Because we all battle them. Now you may think, ah, not so much. I, I haven't murdered anybody recently, right? It's been a long time since I've been part of an orgy, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the mindset that where I'm better than most of them, which again goes right back into legalism, right? What he's saying is if you're part of any of them, you may as well just be part of all of them because these are all sins. And you know the truth. You know that we've envied someone else, We've been jealous of them. We've, we've created some division every now and then. Do you know what so-and-so said? Do you know what so-and-so did creating some division? When I recognize that anger, fits of anger, makes every list, every translation that you can read as being a sin against God, I was like, this has got to stop. I can't let my anger get the best of me. I've got to maintain self-control and I can't do that on my own Holy Spirit help me help me maintain my self-control so that I don't lose the incredible testimony that you have in my life when I act out of your will and not my own flesh that's the attitude that we take the Holy Spirit this is your fifth bullet point gives us the guidance and the power to bear good fruit in our lives he not only stops us from doing the bad things, but he leads us to do the good things. What are the good things? I love this passage. Listen to Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he adds, against such things there is no law. You see the stark contrast between the two? Like, there's no, uh, there's no gray in this. There's no tweeners in this. You could look at any of these lists and easily decide which is good and which is evil. We know it. And, and yet, we will justify our actions either by comparing ourselves to someone else, saying, ah, eh, we're not that bad, 
or by saying, well, we're all human. And we are. But you've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to recognize sin as sin. And so when we sin, we confess it as sin. We thank God for our forgiveness and for our salvation. And we ask him for his power to lead us away from those kinds of actions and those kinds of thoughts because we want to honor him with our lives. The way that that happens is with an intimate, close, ongoing pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. The way that Jesus describes it is, I'm the vine and you're the branches. In fact, let me read it in John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, remains in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We are incapable of doing the things that God would have us to do in and of ourselves, by our own power, even by our own will. It is by the power of Christ in us that allows us to do this. We become like Christ in this journey, gradually, not overnight, but continuously, as we grow knowing him better and as we grow to love him more. Now, I'm going to read something to you that really strikes me and I'm going to tell you why in a moment but I want to read it to you before I tell you to see how it strikes you listen to what he says in verse 24 and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires nothing new but let me ask you this question have did you notice that it's written in the past tense those who are Christ's have in the past we've already crucified our flesh and our passions and our desires i'm just going to be honest with you i look at that and i go i'm not so sure i have not all the time more than i've done in the past but i've not died to all those things those those things continue to crop up i, I want you to see the picture that that i picked up uh, as I, as I, or that I saw as I studied this passage. Imagine this. Imagine a cross where every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit has been placed on that cross. Every one that you've done, every sin that you will do is there. And then along with it goes your sinful nature right up on that cross. And that cross has your name on it. God says this is the cross that you have to die on because of those things. Christ steps in and he says no not you I will die for you for those things see our, our sins and our sinful nature has been crucified by Christ so that he now lives in us so that we can follow his will and his way he's paid the price and the goal that God has is for people to see the transformation in our lives so that his glory will be revealed. In fact, that's your next bullet point. Our lives now reflect his glory. That, that is who he has made us to be. We are image bearers of Christ and we are light bearers of his truth and, and of his holiness. So this is the hope that we have and the whole key is staying in step and stride with his spirit. That's how he ends this passage. 
Galatians 5, verses 25 through 26 ends with this. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Don't just sit around claiming salvation. Live out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Scripture tells us. Let us not become conceited. Don't think that you're better than someone else because God's done this great work in you. Let us not be provoking one another, right? Don't be haughty in the godliness that comes through Christ, and don't be envious of one another. Uh, don't envy one another. See, he wouldn't have to tell us not to do these things if they didn't exist. Am I right? Right. He, he wouldn't have to say, don't do these things if we couldn't do these things as believers, which I often hear as an argument, that that sinful nature is gone. Well, then why does Paul tell us not to do them? If it's gone, it's not gone. We're doing a battle against our flesh by the power of his spirit that's at work within our lives. And the hope that we have is that the power of the spirit is greater than the power of the flesh. And the power of the spirit is greater than the wiles of this world. And so when we turn our focus and our attention through our love on Christ, we will walk closely with him. And we will become the people that he's called us to be. And none of us should receive any credit for that. None of us should look at one another and go, you are killing it right now as a Christian. Because the truth of the matter, if you are, it's by the power of Christ that's at work within you. And praise God that he's led you to that leading and to that understanding. So just keep this in mind. Your last bullet point is this. God does all the work. So God deserves all the glory. I'm going to invite Pastor Steve and members of his praise team to join me on stage. They're going to lead us in one last song, really a song of devotion and commitment. But um, while he's making his way there and they're getting ready with their instruments, I'm going to mention a name that I bet all of you are very familiar with. It is Johann Sebastian Bach. You recognize that name? Now, you don't have to be a fan of classical music to know who Johann Sebastian Bach is. He is a well-known composer of classical music, and much of the music that we even hear today has infiltrated um, uh, musicians from all over the world. Well, do you know that Bach wrote these words about music? Bach is quoted as saying, all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Let me say that to you again. He says, all music should have no other end and no other target, no other name than the glory of God to be used for the soul's refreshment. In fact, if you look that quote up, you're going to see that he goes on to say, any other music that doesn't do that, it's kind of devilish hubbub. Why does Bach say that? He's not a Christian musician. He doesn't write just Christian music. Well, did you know this about Bach? He um, headed all of his compositions with the letter JJ. Jesus Juva, which means Jesus help me. He ended all of his compositions with the three letters SDG. Soli Dia Gratia, which means to God alone be the glory. Bach recognized that any work that is good comes from Christ. And 
Christ alone is deserving of the glory. Let's reflect on a moment as we close our time together on what's happening right now in heaven. Because Jesus said that we should pray that what is happening in heaven is happening on earth. Right here, right now, angels are praising Jesus. They're lifting their hands. They're lifting their voices. They're praising the name of Jesus. Why? Because he is deserving of that glory. They see him and know him for who he truly is. Elders are taking crowns off and going, I'm not keeping this. This is yours. They're kneeling before him and they're praising and they're honoring him. I love Revelation 4.11 where it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power. For you created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created and brought into beating. Lord, you are deserving of all our praises. This morning, as we end our time together, you have an opportunity to place your faith and your trust in what Christ did for you on the cross by surrendering your life to him. And the motivation behind that is not only so that you can be saved, but so that you can experience new life in Christ. And if you've never done that, please consider doing that today. You can bow before him in repentance and acceptance of salvation this morning. And our deacons are going to come up front. They're available to pray with you and for you if you'd like for that to happen. But if you've already done that, and and you've been struggling, or you've been a little stagnant, or, you know, to be honest with you, my relationship with Christ is not everything it used to be. It's not everything it should be. It's really not everything I thought it would be. This morning you have an opportunity to see Christ through the eyes of those who truly know him and see him because when they see him, they worship him and they praise him and they say, you are deserving of all the power and all the glory forever and ever. So would you stand with me now and let's close our time this morning with our full focus on asking God to reveal to us our eyes, our hearts, our minds the truth about who Jesus is. Just like Paul wanted these believers in Galatia to know. Open our eyes, Lord, to the truth of who Jesus is. Speak to us now in such a way, Lord, that we will offer our praise and our worship and our very lives. We will fall before you. We will bow before you. We will offer the words from our lips and the desires of our hearts for you to be worshipped because you are deserving of all glory and all power forever and ever. May we as your people see you as such and worship you now in this place. We ask and pray for that now. In Jesus' name, amen. You worship him as the Holy Spirit leads you. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Wildwood Baptist Church. We hope that today's message 
was an encouragement to you. For more information, you can find us at wildwoodbaptist.org, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Wildwood Ackworth on the web and on social media. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to hearing from you.